Well, uh, this Sunday morning is Palm Sunday, and which marks the beginning of Holy Week. And Palm Sunday uh, marks the occasion of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And during the years of Jesus' earthly ministry, of course, he had been traveling all over Israel, making quite a reputation for himself. He'd been teaching with extraordinary wisdom and power, as well as performing all of these incredible miracles. And everyone knew how he had refuted the proud Pharisees in public to their face and left them, the most learned men around, foolish-looking and fumbling for answers in his presence. Of course, stories were everywhere of how he'd cast out demons and stood up for the weak and how he'd shown compassion and grace to the worst sorts of sinners. He'd been witnessed restoring sight to the blind taking away leprosy just by willing it, and healing all kinds of infirmities. He'd even raised people from the dead. He had fed thousands of people using only a boy's lunch. Jesus had become, by this time, a household name. There was even talk within Israel at this time that this Jesus, who had done so many wonderful things, might just be the long-awaited Messiah. You know, these days with everything going on in our society today, I'm hearing the expression unprecedented a lot. And it's true. We're seeing a lot of things that are unprecedented, at least in our time. And Palm Sunday is really one of those great unprecedented moments in the Bible. This is something that is going to happen on Palm Sunday that in their time, in anybody's time, in world history, was unprecedented. The great national hope of Israel, who the prophets of old had spoken of, who would set everything right and free them from their oppressors and establish a righteous reign as king over the entire world with Jerusalem as its capital. Just think of it. Maybe Jesus is that guy. That's what people in Jerusalem are thinking and wondering on the occasion of that first Palm Sunday. Luke, in his gospel, captures for us the moment when this Jesus, who had so captured everyone's imagination, arrives in Jerusalem at the beginning of what would be the most remarkable and significant week in the history of our planet. In Luke 19, 37 through 38, we read these words. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The testimony of Scripture leaves very little doubt about what was probably in the disciples' minds at this moment. This was the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy given centuries earlier. In Zechariah 9, 9 through 10, we read this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations." His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. This was it. This was the moment. Jesus, mounted on the foal of a donkey, was riding into Jerusalem. 
The crowds were announcing him as the Messiah. And Jesus was not only not correcting them, he was beaming with delight. He was encouraging it. At one point, the Pharisees, who fear what the Romans will do if a loud, raucous crowd of Jewish nationalists enter the city declaring Jesus king instead of Caesar, and of course these Pharisees are also jealous over their own positions of power, these Pharisees tell Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. You see, they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And they believed that Jesus' willingness to let let the crowds talk in this way, openly proclaiming him as the Messiah, well, this was reckless grandstanding. So they wanted them to stop. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Imagine the moment and try and put yourself in the disciples' shoes. What a day this was going to be. They must have been wild with excitement and anticipation. Their hearts were pounding, their minds were racing with all the possibilities. How would he do it? How would he make himself king, they must have wondered. Maybe they even wondered out loud to one another. Would he strike the first blow of the revolution by directing his followers to attack the Roman soldiers? (laughs) Or would he just call down fire from heaven to consume the enemies of God? With Jesus, it seemed anything could happen. Nobody knew exactly what was coming, but there was an electric excitement in the air because something big was happening. You could have cut the tension with a knife, I imagine. Something big was about to go down. Jesus was coming into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey, just as Zechariah had prophesied. The crowds were calling him the Messiah, and he wasn't denying it. He was encouraging it. Now, in one sense, the disciples and the crowds were right. Jesus was the Messiah. He was the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies and promises. He was the king of the Jews, and he would be king of the entire world, just as the prophecies had foretold. The book of Revelation tells us of the final fulfillment of Palm Sunday on the last day, like this. We read this in Revelation 7. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The triumphal entry into Jerusalem with the multitudes praising Jesus and waving palms was like a little sneak peek of what was to come in glory. It was a foreshadowing of that day in heaven when God gathers home all of his children, all those who have put their trust in Jesus for salvation, and whom he bought with his own blood. And we celebrate together Jesus' victory. So no, the, the disciples weren't wrong exactly, but, and that's why Jesus didn't correct them. What they were saying was true, but still as we explore further, we see that their understanding was deeply flawed. If the disciples' hopes for that day, and we need to see this, if the disciples' hope for that day over 2,000 years ago had been fulfilled, our hope in Christ would be dashed today. (laughs) If Jesus had entered Jerusalem in the way that the disciples wanted him to, 
that would mean that you and I would never set foot in the new Jerusalem. Why? Well, because there had to be the cross. Without the sacrifice on the cross, there would have been no victory over the real enemy. And that is what the disciples did not yet understand. They did not see clearly enough. Their vision of the coming kingdom and of who Jesus was, was too small. In Luke 9.22, Jesus had told them, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then in verse 44, he told them, Let these words sink into your ears. <laughs> Whenever Jesus uh, says this to the disciples, it, it, when he says this, it, it makes me think that the disciples, you know, we give the disciples sometimes a hard time, but I don't know if I'd do any better than them. But he says here, let these words sink into your ears. Make sure you understand them. Pay attention. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And I think the reason why he said, let this sink into your ears, is because this just absolutely did not compute with their understanding of what was about to happen, of who Jesus was, of what the mission was. They just did not see how that could fit into a good plan at all. But then in the very next verse, we were told, but they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Um, Jesus had this habit throughout his teaching ministry and his time of discipling the disciples, where he would speak often in parables and, and metaphorical language. And I think that they may have just dismissed what he was saying as another parable or something that was laden with moral meaning but wasn't meant to be taken literally. Um, but Jesus meant it very literally. He said, I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to... And that just didn't compute with their vision of the coming kingdom and the glory that Jesus was going to usher in when he entered into Jerusalem. And so they were afraid to ask him about this saying. That's a revealing line. John Piper, commenting on the disciples' attitudes toward the triumphal entry, puts it this way. He said, Their understanding of Jesus' last journey to Jerusalem was flawed. They saw him as a king moving in to take control, and he was. But they could not grasp that the victory Jesus would win in Jerusalem over sin and Satan and death and all the enemies of righteousness and joy, that this victory would be won through his own horrible suffering and death. And that the kingdom which they thought would be established immediately would, in fact, be thousands of years in coming. Now, we know that they thought Jesus would establish his kingdom immediately because of verses like Luke 19.11. It says this, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. In other words, the disciples, as they're nearing Jerusalem, are beginning to feel full of excitement about what is about to happen. They feel very confident in their belief that Jesus is about to announce his arrival on the scene as an earthly ruler over Jerusalem. This is the Messiah, and he is about to bring in a new order. And wrapped up in this, by the way, are their own personal ambitions. So from that verse and others, we see that as they moved toward Jerusalem, they believed they were getting closer to the big day, and that that day would come when they entered Jerusalem. 
Jesus was going to make his big move and establish his kingdom, and they, humble fishermen and people of low status, unlearned people, though they had been, would be great men in the new order of things. This misunderstanding of why Jesus was going to Jerusalem results in a basic but very important misunderstanding of their calling as Jesus' disciples in this moment. This is why this is so important for us to see, lest we fall into the same error. We, We see how this works in Luke 9, this misunderstanding in their minds. In verse 51, we're told, When the days drew near for him to be received, received up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That received up means his, his uh, appointment with the cross. And so he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Of course, that meant something very different for Jesus than it did for the disciples. For Jesus, it meant that he was going to the cross. But in verse 46, you can see the visions of greatness that were already taking shape in the disciples' minds. It says, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. In other words, who's going to be the prime minister? Who's going to hold higher positions in the new government that's coming? They believed that the road to Jerusalem was taking them closer to the moment when Jesus would enter into his kingdom, and they were riding his coattails to glory. They seemed to be right on the cusp of power and high esteem, and they seemed preoccupied with exciting questions about what it would mean for them personally when Jesus took the throne. Their long-shot bet on an obscure carpenter from Nazareth was about to pay off with big dividends. Huge. I mean, just imagine if you had bought shares in Apple when it was first starting up. (laughs) You had invested $1,000 in Apple. And then all these years later, you would come into your payday. I mean, this is the kind of long-shot bet that they have invested themselves in. They've become followers of the man. And who would have thunk it? This guy is going to be the Messiah. And we're going to be with him when he does it. We're his inner circle. Somehow these small-time blue-collar workers were going to be the most powerful and influential men in the entire new kingdom. That's how they understood it. But Jesus had another vision in his head as they're going along the streets to Jerusalem. Jesus' head and the minds of his followers are filled with two completely different visions about what is about to play out when they get to Jerusalem. In Luke 13.33, we read, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem meant one thing for Jesus, certain death. So when it says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, he was setting his face to go and suffer and die. And this speaks to us today powerfully of his love for us. After all, didn't Jesus say in John 15, 13, that greater love has no man than this, that that a man lay down his life for his friends? And that's exactly what Jesus was going to do. He laid down his life for us. He laid it down. It wasn't taken from him. In John 10, 18, it says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. We see these two differing visions, though, on the journey to Jerusalem brought into conflict right at the start of their journey. In Luke 9, verses 51 through 56, it says, As they head out toward Jerusalem, they travel through Samaria. And as they come to a Samaritan village, 
uh, Jesus had sent some of his disciples on ahead to make preparations for them uh, so they could stay there and there'd be food and that kind of thing. But the village refused to receive him because, according to verse 53, their reason for refusing him was because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And I think we can take this to mean that they believed that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to establish his kingdom. And their refusal to receive Jesus and his disciples was a personal rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. There was long-standing, uh, well-documented, we, if you've been uh, in church for a long time, you already know this from studying your Bibles, but there was long-standing ethnic hatred between Samaritans and Jews. And within the Samaritan community, they might not have felt the same shiver of excitement <laughs> over all this Messiah talk as the Jews did. However, when they refused to accept Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem, uh, presumably to become the Messiah, when they refused, James and John ask this of Jesus. They say, Lord, do you want us to bid fire come down from heaven and consume them? And, and here we see what happens when you misunderstand the mission of Jesus. When you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, but you don't see Jesus very clearly. When you don't understand his mission, you don't understand what he's doing. Very, very quickly, these sorts of misunderstandings creep into our hearts and we begin to operate and be governed by that misunderstanding with disastrous results. They think it makes perfect sense. These people are not accepting your rule as Messiah. Should we call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die for them, these people. But his disciples think it makes sense to kill them because they refuse to accept Jesus. And so these two uh, understandings result in very different approaches, very different way of thinking and feeling towards this Samaritan village. And I don't think I'm reading too much between the lines here. They, these uh, disciples of Jesus are drunk with images of the coming glory when Jesus enters into his kingdom, and they're right there with him, his inner circle, what this is going to mean for them and their families and their personal fortunes. Their thinking in this moment went something like this. Jesus, we are on our way to seize the reins of power. And that day will be a day of reward for everyone who's on your side, and it'll be a day of destruction for all of our enemies. And let's get the party started early. Uh, these Samaritans have rejected you. and Let the fire fall. Let the judgment begin. Begin to exercise your power as Messiah now. But how does Jesus respond? Well, in verses 55 through 56, it says, But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another town. Jesus doesn't rebuke the village, although I'm sure uh, these people were not operating from a right heart either, of course. Um, but he rebukes the disciples for their wrong heart towards the Samaritan village. It seems obvious to me, again, that just a, having a poor grasp of Jesus and his mission will lead to a poor grasp of who we are as his followers. And as we look out at the church today, and we see so many who claim to be Jesus' followers, but who don't resemble Jesus in that they don't lay down their lives, and sacrificial service to others. They haven't made that the centerpiece of how they live. 
and they don't demonstrate much concern for the lost or for the pursuit of holiness in their own personal lives. It really makes me wonder if the root problem in such a person's life is that perhaps they, like the disciples here in Luke, just really don't understand Jesus very well. And as a result, they don't understand his mission or the way that they've been commissioned, what they've been called to. In Luke 9, we see that two competing visions for why they are going to Jerusalem results in two different responses. And I would submit to you that perhaps one of the reasons why Christians sometimes respond so poorly to difficulties and rejection and the world's hatred is because they, like the disciples in Luke 9, have a poor grasp of the life that Jesus has called them to. When we describe ourselves as disciples of Jesus, sincere, from-the-heart imitators of His example, we are saying that we are people who follow His example in everything. And the surprising thing about Jesus is that He endured a temporary season of suffering for a future reward of eternal glory. Jesus did not say no to the cross. His triumphal enter Jerusalem was His voluntary entering into a slaughterhouse. And what does that mean for us as his disciples? What does it mean to be sincere, from-the-heart imitators of a guy who willingly went to a cross on trumped-up charges, proclaimed an enemy of the state? Well, Jesus came to live a life of sacrificial, dying service to the lost. He's going to come a second time in glory. That truth demands, though, that we likewise live in a life of sacrificial dying service before we can reign with Christ in glory. Make no mistake about it, that day of glory is coming. The Bible, and if you read um, Philippians 2, um, 3 through 11, those, that passage or others, there's loads of passages in Scripture that talk about the coming day of glory. Judgment is coming. Wrath and reward are on their way. But today we must set our face to Jerusalem, as it were. Luke 9, 23 and 24 reads like this, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, he will save it. So Jesus didn't take our place on the cross didn't just take our place. Of course, he did take our place on the cross. He didn't just take our place on the cross. He set an example for us on the cross also. And we as disciples should follow his example by laying our lives down as he did. There is a day of judgment coming, but for now, though, these remain days of grace. The door is open for any sinner who would come in and be saved. And in these days, we must endure all sorts of suffering and rejection with patience, with love and grace and forgiveness, because we're looking ahead to a future glory. This life is no place to invest our hearts and our hopes. And that's where we come here on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And it's very fitting that this is a communion Sunday. Uh, throughout this past week, we have all behaved in ways that uh, were out of step 
with uh, who we understand Jesus to be and our calling as Jesus followers. We've all sinned, and uh, maybe there are people we need to go to and ask their forgiveness. Um, and we're going to take communion right now. And I've never done communion in this way. And uh, this is a little bit strange, but as I thought about it this week, you know, in the Bible it says to take communion when you gather together. And I wondered if it's even appropriate to do communion in this way, in an online service kind of a way. And uh, maybe this morning you are all by yourself. And if that's so, then uh, you can take heart in knowing that we're with you in spirit. Uh, But maybe you're gathered together with your family or somebody else with whom you are quarantining together. Or uh, Quarantine's the wrong word. I guess maybe it's not. Uh, but you're together. And, and so I would invite you to think of your gathering together today, wherever you are, as the group with which you are taking communion. And I'll just lead it here uh, online. But communion, as I always like to uh, point out, is really a time in the Bible that's prescribed for us to Come before the Lord in a spirit of repentance. In 1 Corinthians 11, let me turn there. In 1 Corinthians 11, uh, it says, uh, let, a, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. It says, whoever, eat, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And then we're called upon to examine ourselves, And so this is really a time when we as God's people um, should spend some time in quiet thought, reflection, prayer before the Lord. If there's any area in your life that's out of bounds, uh, where you're proceeding in patterns of living or thinking or relationship that uh, are in, in disobedience to what the Lord has commanded, if there's any patterns of sin, or if we're entering into this time ritualistically and differently, um, encourage you just to draw before the Lord and uh, talk to Him before we take the elements together. Uh, earlier this week on Facebook, if you're on Facebook, I know not all of you are, um, I was talking about how when the snow melts, it has a way of revealing lots of things that were lost over the course of the winter. Yesterday, my son Jack came in and uh, they had found a mitten that he'd lost out playing in the snow, but when the snow melted, he found the mitten. And on, earlier this week, I was ta- talking about how when the snow melts, my dog has been going out and doing her business in the yard and didn't really think about it much because the snow and ice covered it. But now that it's all melting, it's revealing some icky stuff. And <laughs> I think that a season like this, this current season that we're in, is a, a season that reveals some things to us in our hearts. Um, there are areas of anxiety. There are areas where um, we are entering. There are patterns of sin, and um, the, all of these things are challenging uh, to us in different ways. And there's different things that are being revealed. Some are good. Good things are being revealed, and that's what I opened our service with today. I just was so encouraged this week by some of the things I think this season is revealing in the life of our fellowship. Uh, But of course, there are other things that are being revealed and are showing up that we need to repent of. And so before we take the bread and the cup together, I would invite you just right now in your own homes uh, just to spend a moment in quiet prayer. 
And uh, once we've had a minute to pray and, and talk to God about these things, we'll take the bread and the cup together. Let's pray. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this monthly reminder of who you are and who we are in relationship to you. Father, the, the broken body, the spilled blood, the bread and the cup, these things bring into sharper focus exactly who Jesus is and what we have been called to. Father, thank you for this reminder. Father, your command in Scripture to do this in remembrance of Jesus is timely in the midst of seasons like this. Father, we know that communion is just for Christians. It's something for people who have put their trust in Jesus to do. And of course, it's so important that we be reminded of Jesus so that we go away from this table as an honest reflection of him. Father, in the midst of this season, I pray that we would be people who understand the times and what you are calling us to do in the midst of it. Father, the church was born for such times as these, and I pray that in the years ahead, after this chapter is done and in, written in the books, that we would look back and, and see marvelous testimonies of how you use State Road during this time and in the difficult season that will surely follow it. Father, I pray that you'd steady our hearts, give us joy and hope and patience and suffering. And Father, give us a great endurance and strength as we proceed together. Be with everyone today, Lord, especially those who are alone. Father, I pray that you would be with our hospital staff. Father, I pray that you'd be with students who are not in school. God, I pray, Lord, that you would help them to uh, take up their studies and be with those families, Lord, that are out of work, with small business owners who are stressed out with how to pay bills and make payroll. Father, we know that there is a lot of stress and anxiety. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would help us as your people to represent you well in the midst of all that, to be your hands, your feet, your mouth, 
God, help us to serve and surprise your community, that this community. Father, help us to represent you well. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.